Hello, I'm Will. Welcome to Research Pod. By the end of this very podcast, your heart will have beat something in the region of 1,500 times and moved around 130 litres of blood. That's a lot of oxygen and sugars moving to nourish your cells, and a lot of cellular waste being cleared. That waste can tell you a lot about your health, any immune activation, mineral deficits, or stress hormones you have circulating. So, what do you think it means when chunks of cells, knocked loose by the sheer stress of your own blood pressure, start turning up? Dr. Ramni Ramchandran of the Medical College of Wisconsin and his team are developing new tests for these cellular fragments in blood to determine what they can tell us about your whole body health. Dr. Ramchandran, hello there. Hi there. Thanks so much for your time today. Just kind of by way of introduction for the listeners at home and for a little bit of my benefit as well, could you tell us a bit about your career trajectory so far, what's kind of led you to medicine or through clinical research, or if there's anything personal that you've been striving after? I started my career in India, and I did my bachelor's and master's in in biochemistry and uh, microbiology in India, and then came to the United States to go to graduate school and got my PhD at the Augusta University where I studied the transcription of beta globin genes and very basic biology. Really, what I wanted to do at that point was really apply my research into the clinic, and that's been my quest all through my career. And so that led me to a fellowship at Harvard where I worked with uh, Vikas Sukhatme, and uh, where we were studying how blood vessels are formed in, in tumors. And so that was our focus. But soon I realized that the tumor vessels were a lot different than normal vessels. And so, and we didn't really know a lot more about normal vessels. So I decided to go and study normal vessels first. And that's where I, my passion for using zebrafish, uh, a tiny fish from a native India came in. And that's where I focused on studying uh, blood vessels in zebrafish. Uh, that took me on to the next step of my academic career, where I went to the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, as an NCI scholar, where I established the zebrafish model for studying vascular development in the trunk blood vessels, actually, in Bethesda. And uh, soon I got recruited from there to the Medical College of Wisconsin, where I have established a program in uh, vascular biology, and this is where I'm currently a professor uh, in pediatrics. And uh, I study vessels uh, mostly in the brain and in the heart. And so our today's discussion is about these very tiny little structures called cilia that are found on these endothelial cells that line the blood vessels of the brain and the heart. This project is a team effort and we have numerous labs in uh, various parts of the United States that play a critical role in this project. Um, I'd like to specifically mention some of their names. Dr. Surya Nali from Chapman University. He was uh, instrumental in working on cilia proteomics, and and he's a major component of this uh, project. Dr. Uh, Sean Palachuk from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He works on the role of cilia in vascular stability from a question of blood-brain barrier. And so he's got a very critical role to play there. Dr. Kevin Rarick from the Medical College of Wisconsin, 
who is developing traumatic brain injury models and trying to understand the role of ciliary protein as a biomarker of vascular health in those injury conditions. And finally, Dr. Rahima Zanadi from Duke University, North Carolina, who is focused on understanding the role of cilia on red blood cells in the blood and how that might influence removal of cilia from the endothelium. The postdoctoral fellows and technicians in these labs are also an integral part of this uh, particular uh, project. And each one is obviously working on the questions that I already described in their respective labs. So this is the team, and we are also ably supported by a statistician, Dr. Amy Pan. And this work is funded by the National Institutes of Health. So that's my sort of history story so far. You mentioned that studying blood vessels for diseases, that makes a lot of sense, but I didn't realize there was that much not known about blood vessels in healthy or regular tissue, because it seems kind of like a fundamental part of biology, of medicine, that blood is transported around the body effectively and well, and that we should, you know, be on the best foot to understand that before we deal with when it goes wrong. If we could start by talking about, like you say, blood and blood vessels normally or working as healthily as they can do, and when disease or dysfunction starts to come into that. Yeah, so as you rightly pointed out, blood flow is, an, is a really a vital component of all organs. And without flow, most uh, organs will fail. In some ways, you would think that one would know a lot about this process already, but our ability to study blood vessels from a developmental perspective has been partly hampered by this fact that you need flow in order for the organism to live. But luckily, in the fish, fish can survive uh, without circulation, blood flow. And so they have their own sort of source of food, which is their yolk, that gives them the food. And so they can survive and they don't need blood flow. So that allows us to probe more deeply into blood vessel formation live inside an embryo. And, and the fish being transparent in an embryonic state, we can actually do microscopy where we don't have to do anything invasive because it's so transparent and it's easy to view. So I think the development of model systems, especially like zebrafish, facilitated the growth of or the development or studies of, of blood vessels in, in more depth. And so we started to be able to understand how they form. We could take live images, live microscopy of vessels forming as they were developing, how they were connecting, how they were pruning. So these things were not as amenable. Uh, subsequently, some, some of this work has matured into the mouse blood vessels as well. But obviously, the mouse is, is, uh, is an opaque organism, and so it's hard to uh, look through them. But I would have to say, before zebrafish, uh, chick did contribute a lot to blood vessel development. So cilia and endothelium, if we could start off with a high school biology approach to what those cells are and get into what happens when things go wrong. Sure. So as I mentioned, our interest is on this tiny structures called cilia. They're almost like hair-like projections that come out of, of the endothelial cell, which lines the blood vessel. And it faces the area of the flow, which is the lumen or the tube, where in the center of the tube where the blood is flowing, it's projecting into that lumen. And so it is 
originally thought of as a blood flow sensor. So it senses the blood flow. Now, cilia is not only found in endothelial cells, but it's also found in most cells in the body. So it's not just unique to endothelial cells. But in the endothelium, it's, it was often thought of as a flow sensor. So when the flow is sensing, it would bend, and this bending would cause some changes to the cellular calcium, and that would lead to some downstream signals that would either lead to contraction and other sort of uh, functions inside the cell. Now, the our interest and those of many others have on cilia it has primarily come from studies where ciliary genes functions are lost in certain developmental conditions uh, such as Joubert syndrome and so on and so on. They are often these these patients have severe neurological deficits and other cognitive deficits. Cilia has been implicated in various human pathologies. Uh, that's where the interest for cilia has sort of like enhanced in the biological sphere with so many different organs where it is found. We have identified it associated with diseases. For example, congenital heart disease, brain malformations. I just talked to you about cognitive deficits. There are other conditions as well. So strange to think that something so small has such an impact on those massive structural damages later. That's right. That's right. So uh, especially in the heart, when a lot of the congenital heart defect mutations that have been identified in mice are all uh, in cilia genes. Most of them are in cilia genes. What exactly do they do to cause the structural deficits? It is thought that they might be altering uh, some structural elements of the cardiomyocytes or the way they are developing during uh, in the heart, and that might cause different functional deficits in those cells. But it's really not fully clear how they function in those organs uh, to kind of express their disease phenotypes. Besides just the turning off of cilia genes, causing them to not be expressed and all of those knock-on effects, your research also looks at the desolation that when cilia are knocked off by, I guess, typically a mechanical force, either something, you know, knocking into them through the blood, another cell tumbling through, or maybe sheer, like, pressure of blood moving. Is that right? That's right. So what's been observed in a decade or so ago is that, so normally cilia would sense low blood flow. But if the blood flow goes higher and above a certain shear stress, which is what the tangential force of the blood on the vasculature, on the vessel, and if that flow increases, so like, for example, hypertension, where, you know, blood pressure, where there is increased blood pressure, you will get increased blood flow. It was noticed that cilia from those endothelial cells were lost. And, and so the point was, what happens? You know, why would cilia get lost from these cells? And that was the first question, right? And second question was, where do these cilia go if they are lost from these cells? And then a few years later, uh, a couple of years ago, a group in Stanford published a very nice paper where they showed that most cells lose the entire cilium in the mammalian cells. And so these two sort of disparate observations kind of made us realize that perhaps there's a much more widespread phenomenon where ciliary loss from these cells could perhaps be tracked in some fashion. So our, our logic was, if there is our conditions where there's high flow, or we could mimic that in the laboratory setting, could we detect 
uh, cilia in the supernatants from these cells or in the fluid where they are abating. And so that was our really our question. And it turns out you indeed can. So when they are lost from these cells, you can actually detect them and their proteins in the supernatants from some of these cells, including not only endothelial cells, but also kidney epithelial cells, which is a primary source of cilium and is associated with a, with a very important genetic condition called the polycystic kidney disease, where they have numerous cysts in the kidney, and it's often associated with the ciliary dysfunction in the kidney cells. Are there any instances of cilia being trafficked to organs and causing some accumulation, some blockage? You mentioned that there was a link between cilia loss and neurodegeneration. Is that similar to everything that I've heard about Alzheimer's plaque buildup? That's a very interesting point, Bill. I, I think that whether ciliary loss in cell types such as, let's say, for example, in the brain, in astrocytes and neurons and these cells that comprise the neurovascular unit, whether those would cause the exacerbation of the Alzheimer disease uh, phenotype where you have these proteins accumulating and maybe ciliary fragments disruption further exacerbating these processes or disrupting the normal functioning of these cells could clearly be influenced, in my view. Have there been any instances of taking a lung sample or some kind of tissue biopsy and finding cilia that you know have come from elsewhere in the body that, you know, they've come adrift and got lodged? That's a very interesting point. I, we don't have that information yet, but, but cilia do secrete these vesicles. These are small little sort of membrane parts that come out of the cells. And so it's thought that these can travel long distances and perhaps, and there is this concept of exosomes that people may be familiar with, which are similar kind of vesicles or, or membrane structures, which carry proteins and, and RNA and lots of other things. Although we are at the infancy, we believe that the, some of these extracellular vesicles or membrane fragments, the carriers of proteins and RNA from cilia could be uh, long distance communicated with other cells, but we're yet to, to find their deposition in other cell types. It's, a, it's ongoing research. What does it take to detect cilia? Cilia contains a few thousand proteins. Exact numbers are still not known. And these proteins are native to cilia, meaning they're coming from the cell that they reside in. So they're not, they don't make these proteins. They're already in the cell, and then they are transported inside into the cilium. So they carry a signature of the cell that they represent. And these proteins are, are, can be identified when the, when the cilia breaks down. You can think about blood being a place that you could identify these proteins. CSF or cerebrospinal fluid is another place. A urine is another place that others have been able to detect. So we normally can detect these in various places, various fluids. And what we have noticed is that we use antibodies against these proteins and their fragments to detect them. Currently, we are doing them with very traditional Veston blotting methods to detect these proteins, but we are on our way to generate specific antibodies that would be used to detect them in a sort of a chip-based format where we could put a, a little bit of blood or a little bit of fluid and then have the chip with the antibody specific to these ciliary proteins, and then you would be able to get an answer whether the protein levels are high or low, uh, which 
would perhaps inform the clinician or the care provider of a impending crisis or crisis has just occurred uh, where they've had an injury to the brain and suddenly their all their cells are disrupted and the proteins have gone up dramatically and then one could uh, use that uh, as a point of care test. So That sounds like it'd be a very useful biomarker. I mean, are there any plans to take that forwards in the near future? Like what's the step between knowing what you know now and having that test available in clinics, in hospitals for people in exactly those circumstances? Yes, um, that is our very much our immediate plan. So what we want to now do is we are in a phase where we need to collect patient samples with sort of brain injury, which is our focus, and correlate these levels that we are seeing to a scan to see what was the extent of the injury when the values were a certain number. So once we have that correlation, then one would be able to sort of incorporate these antibodies into an existing format where one could sort of detect these in these uh, chips that I talked about a, a few minutes ago. There are companies out there that have these chips and they have certain other proteins that they are looking at, but then we would think the ciliary proteins would be added to that complement set of proteins. And perhaps we could get a different set of information from ciliary proteins than we could get from the other proteins. And combined with these knowledge, we could perhaps tailor the treatments. Now you mentioned the development and traumatic brain injuries cases when these will be knocked off and when they'll be most readily detected. Are there any other conditions where People should be aware that this could be a biomarker for the future if there's you know, anything that can happen eventually, like traumatic brain injury or any lifelong conditions, that this could be a complement to the care strategy there is at the moment in the future. From the perspective of auxiliary loss, any disease condition where there is a flow component and a disruption of flow is fair game. So I would say that opens up the whole uh, can of worms here. But I would say Im- immediately I can think of preeclampsia, which is a uh, which is a very important condition in pregnant women, and with with sudden increase in hypertension is a classic area where we could see this developed as a biomarker. Hy- general hypertension, any atherosclerosis, any areas where flow is compromised. So these are all areas where one could see an application uh, be developed. in in our In our study, we've also looked at sickle cell disease, a disease where the red blood cells are sickle in shape and they seem to clog these different vasculature and these patients have these episodes of seizures. Or we could perhaps detect in these patients their ciliary profile by looking at their red blood cells. So it turns out in these patients, the red blood cells carry ciliary fragments, which was unexpected. Because these red blood cells often interact the blood vessel wall. Normally, they flow right through the middle of the lumen. But in these patients, they kind of bounce off the blood vessel wall. And by doing so, they are knocking off the cilia and accumulating them. And so that could be another sort of application for these patients when they come in for routine checkups to see if their cerebral vasculature is about to leak and so on. And maybe the ciliary profile could predict whether that's going to happen or not in these patients. So there's another immediate application that we can see. Are there any conditions or regular biological processes that might confound cellular detection? Like I'm thinking of just immune clearance if they're getting 
swept out by immune cells, or if they are regenerating at such a rate that their loss is not readily detectable, or I mean, if they are being lost, that they are replaced and there isn't actually that much going wrong immediately, even if it's a symptom of something to come later? Sure. It's possible that the immune system will begin to start to clear these ciliary proteins. But in some ways, that is actually a good thing because the level of ciliary proteins dropping in a, in a rapid fashion would be indication of a sort of going back to normalcy. Indeed, the rapid clearance of the ciliary protein is an indication that system is coming back to returning back to normal. And so that's actually not a bad thing, but a good thing. So. Is the regeneration of cilia something that could also be a therapeutic target or something that could just be encouraged through, I don't know, diet and exercise? Yeah, well, this is something that is uh, conceptually an idea that is really plausible because we think that the ciliary regeneration, because this is a dynamic structure, it it, it is formed in a cell and it gets broken down periodically. And we believe that as one ages, this process perhaps gets a little bit off the rails. And so as the regeneration capacity goes down, the cilia regeneration capacity in this case, the cell starts to lose some of its functional characteristics and gets weakened and so on. And, and, and that leads to perhaps uh, some long-term issues. And so, yeah, I would imagine that Oh, if one could figure out a way to take some fruits or some diet changes that would keep reverse some of these re cilia regeneration to baseline, perhaps one could see a benefit to the health. The immediate application of this new knowledge, which is the loss of ciliary proteins can be detected upon change in flow, can be detected in blood as far-reaching implications. And as I mentioned, from a brain injury or traumatic brain injury perspective, this concept will allow people to make a decision on whether or not with the knowledge that their ciliary proteins are abruptly very high uh, post-injury, whether or not they are going to hopefully subject themselves to an MRI, a CT or an MRI scan. And so that's an immediate sort of decision tree there, whether you want to subject a child to that or not. And secondly, we are hoping that from our experiments, we've already know that in, in preclinical models, that the extent of injury correlates with the amount of ciliary proteins that are in the blood. So what I mean by that is, a mild injury, you get less proteins. More injury, you, a severe injury, you get more proteins. And so that would also predict whether somebody is going to have a long-term problems with cognitive deficits or cognitive decline or persistent concussion-related symptoms. And that might alter the course of treatment as well. So I would think that our research will immediately benefit patients who are undergoing brain injury and with the development of the biomarker test, which we hope to incorporate via this, uh, this chip where we can detect ciliary proteins will be immediately uh, translatable into uh, point-of-care tests in the clinic. And so it's a 15-minute test of the plasma and then you'd have results in hopefully less than 30 minutes and then you would be off and running. So that's the immediate sort of benefit. I would say 
for patients who have had preeclampsia, their first pregnancy, and maybe they want to have a second child and they're worried about that again in their course of their next pregnancy, they may want to consider incorporating a cilia biomarker test as a way to predict whether this episode of hypertension is going to occur. When is it going to occur? And so it could be a sort of prognosticator of things to come in that population. And that could be very beneficial for the clinician to know when they should take the next course of action, an appropriate course of action. Uh, and, and again, we think that I don't want to say that cilia can stand alone as a readout for some of these things, but we, we do believe that it can serve in a complement fashion to existing biomarkers in these fields. And perhaps in some cases, it could be a standalone as well. So it's, but these are all very active work in progress. I'm not aware of any clinical trials right now that patients can enroll in, but we are clearly looking for samples associated with these various conditions that I just described. And if you are in part of an academic medical center or where you can clearly uh, check with your uh, re local researchers and doctors, and, and if you're interested, connect with us, and we can uh, also provide some contacts. And from our own research perspective, in the next month or so, we have very exciting information that, at least in the brain hemorrhage field, we know that cilia is ex when ex expressed at a very specific time in the developing brain, and that is associated with vascular stability. So that concept will really open up the field of cilia biology, we believe, and also in conditions like pediatric intraventricular hemorrhage, it's a devastating condition. They really don't have a whole lot of treatment options. We believe that the cilia and its detection and maybe restoration of cilia at a particular time in development would uh, prevent the development of hemorrhage. And that, in our view, uh, would be a quite satisfying outcome of our research. <laughs>